Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Colin McCormick. And today we're talking about the 1981 fantasy adventure, Clash of the Titans, directed by Desmond Davis and produced by Charles Schneer and Ray Harryhausen. We are also joined today by our one of our many favorite guests, Yay. Christy Vogler, Dr. Christy Vogler. So happy to have you back with us. I'm really excited to be back and help out with season two as much as my crazy schedule will allow me to. So it's like, I feel like I'm, I'm not necessarily series regular. What's I don't like know what quite is the tier. It's like not just like guest star, but like. Maybe. The analogy I thought of is you're like the Green Ranger in the original Power Rangers where oh, it's yes. like, you know, there's like the core five and you know, Tommy's there like a lot. And becomes very integral to the show, although he's not one of the sort of original core vibe. Like, that's like, you're the Tommy to our Jason and Kimberly. That's fair. Does that mean I'm also slightly evil to begin with until I have a redemption arc? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because everybody, as everybody, of course, knows, Dr. Christy Vogler is uh, a servant of Rita Repulsa. <laughs> yeah, you didn't think I'd just, like, have Power Rangers Lord ready to go? I, I could follow it to a point. All I know is that there is a problem. A monster shows up, you think you defeat the monster, and then it gets big because they threw a staff at it, and then Mecha shows up, pew, 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 explosion, yeah. turn around while explosion happens, and resolution. <laughs> That's it. That's the genre formula right there. That sounds like very similar to Clash of the Titans, actually. <laughs> monster, <laughs> pew, 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 turn well, around. Yeah, there, there, is, there, is a, there is a good connect, but yeah, like... like like we were talking earlier, right before we sort of started recording, because we got Christy is one of our many, many exciting guests. And we do have some really exciting guests. I don't want to jinx it formally, but we got some good guests lined up. Christy among them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't feel if I, I quite uh, meet up to the upper echelon of some of the people we have coming that I'm really excited to get to meet vicariously via Zoom. But that is the way of the world today. So. Well, we asked you first, so. That is true. I, and I'm very pleased to be here. And um, I, I keep telling all my students, like, you guys, I'm on a podcast. I'm so excited. And I hopefully we'll get some more listeners there. I do have this really cool, um, my Greek Civ class is doing unessay projects. So instead of doing a traditional research paper, I'm trying to have my students either create something displaying classical reception or critiquing contemporary versions of classical reception. So I used your guys' podcast as an example of like how you could do that. So hopefully we're going to get some more listeners. Hell awesome. yeah. Eli, have you told your students no. about the show? <laughs> I haven't told mine yet. I'm like a little embarrassed. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't have a, a good reason because I'm not actually face-to-face -face teaching or even virtually teaching this semester. I'm just a grader um, for like a really big lecture class because dissertation. So it feels much less personal. I did tell a few of my students last semester because we had like small group discussions and like some of them would, you know, stay after and, and talk with me. And I was like, oh, well, hey, if you're like interested in this, like I do this podcast. And so I feel like it was a every now and then I would tell like one or two students. But yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm embarrassed. Are you one of those people <laughs> that don't like hearing their voices when they when they're recorded? Yeah. Yes. I, I don't know anyone. I mean, maybe problem. there are like the chosen few, like those voice actors and, and, you know, like Morgan Freeman and those types who have like who <laughs> like hearing their own voices. But that's not that's not us. 
You just equated me with Morgan Freeman, which I am okay with. Because, like, I love listening to my voice. I was really tempted to listen to one of our, like, one of the podcasts I had guested on again. It was like, I've listened to most of them at least twice. So, don't know what it is. I have no issue with my voice. No. Like, that's awesome. Yeah, rock <laughs> on. I really don't like, I because I have, like, a nasally, and I have a lot of funny speech patterns that are not funny. I just kind of have a stuttery, like, I sound like a, like, a, you're trying to turn over an engine. And I get really, when I get really excited, I kind of like sputter and start. That's what I'm trying to work on this as we get into our new season and I develop my like professional radio voice. I got to uh, troll my students a little bit because apparently I was using big vocab and it's like, fine, I, if you think I'm using big vocab today, I'm going to hit you with petulant and acquiesce. <laughs> and and I literally tell them, like, look it up. And they had quite, quite a lot of fun with petulant in particular. I'm teaching Latin right now. And, and you know, I always drop it. I'm like, oh, this is like this word and this word or something. Like that. But the one the, the one that they were like, they gave they were giving me sh- uh, shit for was I was like, oh, yeah, it's like this is like apes. It's like in, if you work at an apiary, like, what do you work with? And people are like, apes? Like, I don't know. Like, and I was like, bees. And they're like, who calls it that? And I'm like, I call it that. And they're like, you're a nerd. And I cried. And I was really, this is like not a good tone to set in class. I won a nice quiz like pop quiz not pop quiz uh, pub quiz challenge because like one of the questions is like what's the official term for someone who studies ants and all I could remember was Achilles men being called the Myrmidons which I knew was a reference to ants and sure enough that got me the right answer (laughs) it was like Greek myth for the win nice Nick will bring up like weird law terms and he's like what does this actually mean and he really stumped me with Ishit, I think is what it was. I don't know. Here, I'll type it out for you guys. That's French, isn't it? Well, it's apparently it gets like incorporated into English from like Middle French. And okay. it's actually from like ex cadere. So it's like to fall out of something. That was a fun one. Ishit. I was just like, that is a French bastardization of Latin if ever I saw it. So. <laughs> Anyway, speaking of a French bastardization of Latin, Clash of the Titans. <laughs> that was a real uh, forced segue, but we'll start with, with our, our pseudo-guest, pseudo-host, half-guest, half-host. Christy, do you do you dig Clash of the Titans? And what was your first experience with this movie? So my first experience with this movie actually was a sword and sandal film class I took as an undergrad at Whitman College. And so this was one of many films that we watched for that class And I have to say, anything predating the 90s always underwhelms me a lot of time. I will say what I had a lot of fun with this movie was like researching the background drama that was happening with it because there was a lot going on because I watched it on Amazon and you can do that thing where it paused and you can kind of to help identify all the characters and stuff. And it's like trivia. I'm like, okay, I spent a good two hours going through the trivia and like getting facts up and like that. And I'm like... Holy cow, this is fascinating. <laughs> I m- mentioned this in our uh, text chat together, but before I even started watching this movie, I had accumulated like three and a half pages of notes. Yeah, the drama. Oh my gosh. So like for me, I'm not a big old movie kind of person. Even like my mom loved Turner movie classics and all of that jazz. It never quite got my attention and so there were at times when I'm watching this film that it feels slow, but like some like things are happening that pique my interest. So I'm sure we'll talk about it. But the actual fight with Medusa, always unpacking that is really interesting. Realizing that there's an actual Doric temple in one of the scenes, I'm like, wait, 
That's real. <laughs> where are they? Yeah. I also want to talk about where they shot. I did the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So every like the background drama was really cool to learn about. Um, there's like a few moments that like really pique my interest. To me, it's also just not the most quotable movie. Like I know other than release the Kraken, but it's not said with the same amount of energy that I always envision when I hear the phrase release the Kraken. He really slips that line in there. Yeah. He's it's like, like, release the Kraken. Throw away. It's like, yeah. no, it needs more emotion. <laughs> release the Kraken. <laughs> no, that was way too. Um, you were like slipping really... into like some Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah that was more there. Sean Connery. Yeah. That was more Scottish than, yeah. than Irish. Really stuck cracking. That was better. I liked that one. That was good. Mm-hmm. But no, I think I, I liked Liam Neeson's uh, delivery better. <laughs> I agree. Release the cracking. That's why they paid him. I'm pretty sure that was like motivation. It's like we really just like you can phone it in for the rest of that movie, but we need you to just sell this one line. <laughs> Yeah, I I think I have very similar feelings, Christy. I it feels so much older than it actually is. I think I was really surprised that it came out the same day as Raiders of the Lost Ark, which we can also get into. I think it's sort of part of the background drama kind of things is like the movies that it was fighting against because I still watch Indiana Jones and thoroughly enjoy it today and that movie feels so much more modern than this movie does and i also think this movie wanted to be star wars and it it's not (laughs) fantasy version star wars yeah at the time a lot of people drew a a pretty short line from bubo to r2d2 and and ray harryhausen is very was very insistent that he came up with bubo before star wars although i mean it 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 just um even if that's true it's yeah. it's, it's unfortunate because r2d2 snuck in there a couple of years before yeah yeah but i think i think the the lines that we can draw from at least like a new hope to this movie are more than just boobo which yeah. i i can i can get into but we can hold off <laughs> yeah i i am like as attested by the fact that i just when I started just doing some background research for this movie, I just fell down into like a bunch of different rabbit holes because this movie is is fascinating because like Eli was saying, this movie feels like it's of a different time period because it's, it's this, this movie is fascinating to me both as a piece of classical reception and as a piece of cinema history because it really is the kind of last entry of like an era of movie making and it feels that way and right at this time right in the late 70s and early 80s where we're getting the modern blockbusters like lucas and spielberg and james cameron's just getting his start piranhas 2 the spawning is gonna come out in like a (laughs) a year and the jumps forward that are gonna happen particularly between the early 80s and the and the 90s in just movie making technology are incredible when you think about it like you know in the way like terminator 2 is gonna come out like a decade after this and that that the the, yeah. the gap between those 10 years so much happens yeah and really like the birth of the modern sort of summer blockbuster like raiders or or any you know spielberg kind of inventing sort of the 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 this landscape of hollywood today but also as a piece of classical reception and like we can really i want to get into the way this movie approaches myth and yeah it's a movie so it's a movie that like fascinates me and in, in, in that capacity i do really dig this movie because it's just an interesting sort of artifact uh, effectively if we're going to lean into our show's theme Mm -hmm. to sort of excavate and really talk about because it is i think very (laughs) like if you were to like uncover this movie and you know 200 years from now i think this movie would be really 
illuminating about sort of the evolution of American cinema in the late 20th century. But yeah, so I don't know where even where do we even want to start with like the like the pre-production or or just jump into the movie and like go through the plot. Yeah, maybe the plot because I I think I actually really liked what they sort of did with the myth. I feel like they use the story very well and plot-wise I think it it works. So yeah, it starts with that awesome cliffside dramatic execution where they all get doused by that giant wave which was hilarious i definitely made a note because you can see they went to cornwall to film that scene and waited like weeks according to harry Heather's an interview where he talks about this and they waited for weeks for like the weather to be appropriately stormy to get this shot and so like the, the all the, the the guys are out on the beach in their sort of you know uniforms which show a lot of there's a lot of upper male thigh in this movie <laughs> And you, there's like a wave crashes and you can see the extras like kind of flinching as the waves hitting them. I will admit really that dramatic. like scene was actually really tense for me because I'm watching that crate or I don't know how else to describe it exactly. Like go onto this really stormy sea. And for some reason, I still was thinking of like a woman and a small child in there. And I'm waiting for this thing to flip. And I'm like, that that was a great opening scene in terms of like really drawing you into what's going on with the story and then it just kind of continues then to Mount Olympus. I think I think talking about the whole Mount Olympus dynamics is going to be one of my favorite parts about this movie is just it very much opens with like Zeus being outraged because I mean killing family is problematic and I I think that's true to the myth like King Acrisius tried to get around that by just being like I'm just putting her in a boat shoving her off to sea so what happens happens Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's up to fate it's not not my fault and Zeus is like wholly outraged about it and all of Poseidon's there but like all of the women are just like hmm Hmm. Yeah. yeah, let's let's get into Olympus because because you're right. Like I think I think it's really on the nose. I think this movie, by and large, like it totally invents you know monsters and particular details of the plot. But by and large, its retelling of the Perseus myth is pretty. It plays it on the straight and narrow, more or less. It's a pretty faithful retelling. Um, just substitute a couple of details, like mostly in and around the monsters, which mm-hmm. I want to talk about also later. But yeah, let's talk about Olympus. So we've got. There was a deliberate choice by Charles Schneer, particularly. So this movie is produced. It's really Desmond Davis and Alan Beverly Cross are the the director and writer. But this is really a Charles Schneer, Ray Harryhausen movie. Like they're producing it. They're making creative decisions. It's really sort of their brainchild. And the the, Schneer wanted to hire basically a bunch of like A-list British Shakespeare top billing actors to, to round out Olympus. So we got Laurence Olivier. He gets the and in the credits. So at the very end of the credits, it's and Laurence Olivier as Zeus, which you can always tell like when a movie does that, they're really like calling their shot like, haha, like look who we got. And Laurence Olivier, we got Dame Maggie Smith. She might not have been a dame at this point. I don't, I don't think, think she, she was. was. No. Apparently, she it was her friendship with Laurence Olivier that actually got him on the show. So her for that addition. And she was at this time married to the writer Alan Beverly Cross. So she, yeah, she. I think actually she becomes a dame in 1990. And yeah, so they got Laurence Olivier, who was at this time really reaching the end of his life. He was apparently very ill at this time, and he had to like between takes. He was, you know, he had to like rest and recover and and you'd lean on pat roach who i think was playing poseidon hephaestus yes hephaestus and he Mm -hmm. he would say let me draw some of your body strength dear boy 
Um, yeah. So that, that was kind of one of those really touching things that was happening yeah. behind the scenes that was really fascinating. I think this is Laurence Olivier's last performance. It's the last performance in production for a lot of the actors yeah. and people involved. There's an anecdote that Claire Bloom, she she signed on for this. Uh, Claire Bloom, who plays Hera, that she signed on because Lawrence was signing on. She's like, oh, I heard Lawrence was doing it and it was only eight days. And so they're like, which like, yeah, like, all right, yeah. Eight days work sounds great. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so like the gods are like rounded out with these like A-list Shakespeare actors. And they even, so uh, Desmond Davis was hired by Schneer and Mary Harryhausen because he had directed Shakespeare and they wanted that like sort of tone for the gods. There's almost like a, a pomp to the gods. I don't know how to how else to describe it. I remember from the film class I took forever ago, like there was a discussion about how there was actually always an emphasis on casting gods as Brits, basically, to get that accent to somehow distinguish them from different from the mortals for American audiences, at least. It's like, oh, they're high and mighty, therefore they should have a British accent. And then you have your hero be kind of a American, all around American guy. So like uh, whoever played Captain America, Chris, one of the Chris's. Chris Evans. Don't there's too many Chris's. Profane, and this is coming from a girl named Christy. Like there's too many. <laughs> <laughs> but like that, it'd be like casting him today to play Perseus or something like that. Yeah, so. they were gonna hire because Harryhausen at this time he mostly lived in Britain and like worked in and out of Britain and he spent all the rest of his life in Britain and they they were gonna cast a British actor and there was a fear like we don't want to like estrange American audiences or like we need somebody more like you said like a sort of all-American like corn-fed type so <laughs> enter Harry Hamlin so we get this bit from Zeus where he's like oh like you know Crucius can't do this this is wrong which is, I think, the, so the original point I was going to make at the very beginning, which is which is true to mythology in that Zeus is the god who administers justice. That is his sort of department. Poets and, and, and sources will, will always, like, when you're appealing to an issue of justice, you're in Zeus's realm. But then, as Christy knows sort of very quickly, the, all the other goddesses are like, but... <laughs> <laughs> the, like, major eye-roll vibes that you get from all of them there... It was like, it was so tense. It was really good. <laughs> I was just going to say, I love the like almost frenemy relationship between Hera and Thetis because it's like that also feels really true to mythology. It's like, like they're always cautious of each other because of their relation, like relationships with Zeus. But like overall, it's one of the few women or females that Hera gets along with because she didn't sleep with Zeus. So I like <laughs> that a lot too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's this whole like, if you can imagine the like dynamics on Olympus where we've known each other for thousands of years, presumably, or, you know. <laughs> Yeah. eternity and like Zeus is Zeus and we know what he's like and then the goddess is being in the and like the, the, there was like a weird moment which I think I would just like this is a thing that is more of a product of its era where, where, where Thetis was like he tried to ravish me as a cuddlefish <laughs> which is like played for laughs and I mm -hmm. would, I would, but when you think about it like that like opens a little curtain to like a very dark aspect of mythology but yeah. it's just sort of played up as a joke in that scene and well, it's it's sort of played almost like romantically with like him visiting Danaea. I like forgot. She's like there so briefly. Right. Yeah. So one of those weird Amazon facts they pointed out, this is the only, I'm going to say his name incorrectly, Ray Harryhouse. 
Um, this is his only um, film that actually includes nudity. And one of those is Danae, but they're actually showing her not sexualized, but breastfeeding. And I'm like, wait, this is this is actually decent representation of the female body. I think there's one other maybe nudity scene where you might see someone's posterior. Yeah, when uh, oh gosh, Andromeda, Andromeda is getting yeah. out of the bath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like that one was like, all right, it yeah. took it too far that time. You You had me. <laughs> For the little bit of nudity you showed, and then you just, oh, <laughs> nice try, guys. Nice try. But the gods and the goddesses, we get a little bit of Poseidon, but he's mostly just there to go down and on like let the kraken out. Yeah, it's also one of my favorite scenes is him underwater releasing the. Oh, I, I don't know how they did that. Although that's a whole <laughs> other thing. The the goddesses are the ones that kind of like, and this is Thetis's main beef. Where Thetis is like, well, like, why does your son get so much special privilege? And I mean, the short answer is because it's Zeus, and he's not exactly partial, impartial. I should exactly. say, he's not exactly impartial with his favoritism. <laughs> yeah, and yet, they, like he still actually gave a good just, like an actual good justification. It's like well, let's look at what your son's done lately. He killed yes. all my pegasi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I liked the, like, eco-critical element that came on. Like, I'm also a big sucker for, like, eco-criticism. But, like, yeah, he killed <laughs> literally every living thing he encountered and, like, depleted the, the, the land and was, like, just a kind of a tyrant all around. That seemed like a legit excuse. Yeah, no, it's like, reasoning. I, I was... don't know, I'm kind of on Zeus's side for once. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, like, maybe it would be better if we just, like, killed him because he sort of creates so much trouble throughout the rest of the movie (laughs) yeah so calabos is one a creation of this film Mm -hmm. and two he's the he's one of the main points of departure with this and the remake which we've talked about on the show already but we're probably we're going to talk about at the end because in the remake they combine calabos and and acrisius you know which at a certain level makes sense for narratively to like get the have like a sort of antagonist all the way through mm-hmm. which by the way which we didn't even talk about the destruction of argus <laughs> oh oh should we do that real quick because i actually yeah. love well, that <laughs> well like let's put a pin in it because because like, i love like zeus like picks up because in the original arcresius is dispatched relatively quickly where zeus picks up this little toy which is another aspect that carried over into the remake he's got all of his little toys of mortals and he just kind of crushes them and i guess like gives acrisius like a heart attack or something like right then and then they they flood the city and they have like the miniatures and the and this is also crazy because as because Harry Housen apparently he created this this system called like Dynamation I think he changed the name but like but you can it looks like it actually looks like people are getting flooded. It was really fun. I really liked the destruction part with like the walls breaking and the columns falling apart and you can kind of see that it's miniature but it it looks really fun and I like the like the screaming and the falling and I don't know it that worked for me it was almost like campy enough to be fun (laughs) I was on board I liked the destruction sequence yeah yeah I was just thinking that um so part of when the class I watched I watched his earlier work was Jason the Argonauts and I had talked to a student and I think it goes back a lot to our earlier comments where there is not, as far as I can tell, like a great jump from that really early movie from the 60s, I believe, to what was being produced here in the early 80s. And mm-hmm. it's because he was just so good at what he did for such a long time that it's interesting. Like this is the one because of Raiders of the Ro- Lost Ark, because of Star Wars, is just kind of like you can't take this much further than it's gone already. Yeah. For sure. This is as far as you can take this technology. Yeah. 
Yeah. And Eli, you just saying that makes me wonder because like there's a lot of like concern and criticism sometimes in, in movies. And this is also, I think, I'm reminded of a joke from The Office where Ryan says, I never really think I got over 9-11. But I think this is, again, like in a in a post 9-11 landscape where you have city destruction, where like city destruction like that in 1981, where it's pretty clearly, you know, it's well done, but also pretty clearly a miniature Yeah, is, you know, that kind of can't be you can get into it. But then when you get into like, for example, like Man of Steel, where yes. Superman smashes through like 80 zillion skyscrapers and Absolutely. all you're kind of thinking about is like, hundreds and thousands of people are probably dying in this yeah and it has it like kind of sours a scene like that where like it's easier to enjoy like we can enjoy the destruction of argos because we're like that line of verisimilitude or Mm -hmm. the realism the realist irrealist line is like very clear so it's like easy to compartmentalize those in our brain versus like in modern cinema where like you can get extremely photorealistic kind of results yes it's also that like this was supposed to be like a big terrible thing like we were supposed Mm -hmm. to be like oh shit this is bad the destruction of argos and maybe sort of like question as the audience like maybe whose side we are on and like where our loyalties might lie between like yes this guy did a horrible thing in killing his killing um his child and her daughter um versus Zeus is supposed to be the good guy. And I think that that's like an interesting kind of way to engage the audience that like, oh, this is a bad destruction, I think. Yeah. But like in Man of Steel, we are never, I think maybe, I don't know. He's supposed to be the good guy. It's Superman. Like he's supposed to be. That was the main criticism of Man of Steel is like that the movie was generally apathetic or blasé to that kind of that citywide destruction. Mass destruction, huge casualties of unseen hundreds of people. And I think that that's not, that's maybe like one of the biggest culprits in that, but that's not the only one. No, um, not at all. Certainly. And I think maybe something like uh, The Avengers, the first one, sort of talked around it a little bit more or they seemed more concerned with it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that certainly like further marvel movies like don't get away from that either yeah so yeah i think it's a it's also a motivation thing and sort of a how the the audience is supposed to interact with the destruction i think really is meaningful here yeah and i wonder though if how we read it now and how we might have read it in 1981 where like you said zeus is is his arguments against calabos hold water but his destruction of argos like is that a bridge too far i mean granted zeus is the king of you know, taking things a bit too far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, is this supposed to color our, you know, our depiction of Zeus or are we still on board with Zeus? What's interesting is I can't think of large scale punishment of a city. Like, there's well, some interpretation of, one, of Troy being that way, but. But not, but not Greek, because uh, this is a, I yeah. think this might be a, like, a Sodom and Gomorrah type of deal. Yeah. Right. Right. Like most of the gods are very good at catering their punishments to the crimes of the individuals they're punishing, Zeus especially. Mm-hmm. So yep, and yeah, and in the remake there is no destruction of Argos, at least not in the beginning. It's just Acrisius himself is cursed, and then you know Argos gets threatened later, or whatever. And I and but I wonder. Part of me wonder, like my sort of, if I were to be sort of forced to offer an interpretation, is I think. Harryhausen might have just wanted to destroy a city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he has a great quote from an interview he did after Clash of the Titans where he says, 
And actually, it's kind of funny because he's saying the opposite, where he's saying, like, I've, you know, I've destroyed New York with the beast from 20,000 Leagues, and I destroyed the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, and it got a little repetitive. He's like, I'm tired of destroying cities, at least with monsters, I guess. (laughs) Because this movie is so largely driven by Harryhausen and the special effects and the creatures in particular, that this was really, like, the real purpose for the scene is to get the kraken out early and be like check it out and like run him through like run it through its paces yep. which i mean works so that brings us to danai and Perseus. so poseidon destroys argos and he makes sure that they get to their destination i forget even where they end up in the mythology they on one on one of the greek islands yeah. seraphos that's sounds right but so but yeah this is another this i think is the main point of departure in the mythology, in the Perseus story, between this movie and the sort of Perseus myth where we have it, where Perseus sort of grows up very quickly, and we're cast, we get a young Harry Hamlin, and we can talk about him in a second. And <laughs> in the movie, well, so in the in the myth, nominally, there is the the local king, Polydectes, I think is his name, because his name has something to do with like many gifts. They have a lot. Everybody's named very ironically because because uh, Danai is rescued by a man named Dictus, which just means net, and he's like a fisherman. And then Perseus grows up, sort of with this fisherman, and then the fisherman's brother, who's the king, wants to marry Danai. And then in the sort of myth, at least I think as we get it nominally, the Perseus tries to sort of stop the marriage and the king is like, well, if you give me uh, Medusa's head, maybe, uh, you know, that would be a good gift. And really, that's a way to like get rid of Perseus or get him killed. But in the movie, Thetis just teleports Perseus into Joppa. Which I was like, really? Really? (laughs) That's that's what's happening? I mean, to be fair, like one of the hardest to believe scenes in um, the Iliad, the scene that like most of my students would point to in the Iliad is like, that is fiction. And mm-hmm. is when the duel between Menelaus and Paris, and Paris is going to get his butt whooped, except he can't lose this because reasons. And Aphrodite flies down and whooshes him out of the duel into the safety of his bedroom. And it's like, that, that's probably how I imagine this Joppa situation happening. Is like, we're just going to whoosh him to the place we need him to be right now. Yeah, it's like, it's just funny because it's like, it, I think it's telling about the like, thought process of this movie because because it seems like i think the movie is very interested in like hurrying the plot along a little bit and like doesn't want to bother with like the whole basically perseus's mother who also like by the way is like completely forgotten yeah after once perseus reaches adulthood danai just disappears from the movie and he mentions her because i think when he gets to joppa he says something to the effect of like this would be a good place to set my mother up. And like the way I wrote it down, I was like, I guess I'll just take over Joppa. Mm-hmm. And like, might, might as well. Yeah, he just kind of comes. He's like, I guess I'm here now. Uh, and, and then the plot is very much like, like I think this is like the writer slash the gods are like very much showing their hand. Like all of the gifts show up at Perseus's doorstep. By their appropriate statues. I liked that little touch because Aphrodite mm-hmm. of Pinedos has like the one thing and mm-hmm. like I appreciated like there there are some small touches there that an archaeologist or art historian can really appreciate. That uh, amphitheater actually, I didn't think about this, but I didn't look it up. I didn't find out where they shot it because that looks like like a popular amphitheater, but I don't, I don't know where that might have been. Yeah, I didn't even think about the amphitheater. I know that they shot some in Spain. And mm-hmm. then eventually, because when he goes to the underworld, 
to yeah that's pissed mm-hmm. that yeah that's pissed and i'm like but it's like i just saw it's like oh that's a really nicely intact doric temple it must be mm-hmm. from sicily somewhere or somewhere like italy but yeah so so perseus i was saying like I think the movie kind of shows its hand that it just wants to move the plot along by the way. It just puts Perseus in Joppa, gives him all the, like, Zeus is just like, uh, why don't you give Perseus uh, your helmet, uh, your shield, and uh, your sword? Okay, right. Great. And then later, your owl and Athena's like, hot no. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, I yeah. would never. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about the, the first sort of scene of this like, chunk, I guess, maybe act, we might say, of this movie is Perseus basically freeing Andromeda from the curse and then becoming engaged to Andromeda. Which is, again, this is a bit of a departure from the story, whereas, because I think in the original myth, Perseus is, goes on the Medusa's, Medusa quest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to save his mother from marrying against her will, against the evil local lord. And then on his way back, he, like, encounters Andromeda. Yep. Who's being sacrificed to to the Kraken. side quest? Yes, yeah, very much. He's like, I guess I'll get married. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, I love the setup where, like, they are in fact engaged slash mar- married, mm-hmm. but then the curse happens, and it's like you must not sleep with anyone because you must be a virginal sacrifice. It's like, and what happens if she does? Right, I had that question too. I was like, but but if they just have sex, isn't it? Oops, can't be a virginal sacrifice. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so he so he gets all these like awesome gifts. He gets a helmet that turns him invisible from Hades. He gets shield that's presumably indestructible and a sword made of what I think they're alluding to is steel. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because what's they used it in Blood of Zeus adamantium. Mm-hmm. I think is the traditional like harder than than yeah. any earthly metal yeah. kind of yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that, that that is seen in a, f- a few myth tellings. I think it's a later myth that comes that becomes popular because obviously most of the myths are based in the Bronze Age. So iron. Eh. My favorite is, is the word for iron in Hittite is sky metal. I love that. So dramatic. Yeah, it came from comets or not comets. Um, meteor meteor falls, meteorites. When they're meteorites, when they hit the ground, right? Oh, you yes. just science us and like, I know. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> It's like asking me the difference between a stalactite and a stalagmite. It's like, they're the same. Stalactites are on the ceiling. Stalagmites are on the ground. Stalactites hold on tight. Stalagmites push up with all their might. Oh, that's ingenious. I yeah, like that's that. a good one. I like that one. Mm-hmm. Sky metal sort of made me think of this. It feels very much like a D&D kind of quest. Like even the myth itself is just like, use yeah. the dead monster carcass that you took as a as a trophy to like kill your next monster and like you like are given a fancy sword by an yeah, unseen this plot divine force like, uh, uh. yeah oh and, and the, we get the, the shiny shield find your purpose and yeah. the purpose is cute girl cute girl everything else the shield has a purpose later but we're an hour into recording and we are in the first like 20 minutes of this movie <laughs> Um, but which I think is a good sign that we have a lot of thoughts. Uh, so, but then we, we have a, uh, Perseus has a, what I call an Edward Cullen moment where he's like, the first thing I'm going to do with my helmet of invisibility <laughs> is sneak into the princess's bedroom. Oh my God. The After getting thing. some exposition from yes. the very nice guard man. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. And we, 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 we skipped over Amon. Amon, yeah. yeah. Amon. The, the poet, the oh, kind of like him too. plucky yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, in the in the original myth, isn't he like a prophet or something, or like an mm-hmm. oracle, or yeah, Bur- Burgess Meredith, uh, yeah, and he's kind of the like he he's there to effectively like deliver exposition and like help yeah. give information and help move the plot along. He's like, oh yeah, the princess, oh, and Thalo, um, the hel- or as I call him, the helpful guard. I love the pers- helpful guard. <laughs> when Percy shows up, he's like, "What's going on?" Thalo's like, "Let me break it down for you." <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was gonna turn out to be like. A jerk or something or like no thalo was ba- i think thalo should have there been, he, he should have hero. lived he, loved him he apparently so apparently they did so much marketing kind of going back from like star wars because they made like children's figurines and things like that but apparently they also made something like a graphic novel that specifically followed thalo and the other soldiers that otherwise were nameless and just are convenient die-offs for each of the monsters red shirts so. Yes. They are red shirts without, yep. So apparently there was a storyline there. Well, I want that storyline. I love that storyline. Thalo was great because throughout the entire adventure, Thalo was like, oh, that thing you need? Here. Here's this. Here's this. Let me uh, like, like help you out. Because this is getting to one of the, I think, traits of, in a way that this movie, intentionally or otherwise, is very true to the Perseus myth, which is Perseus is really carried a lot of the way. Mm-hmm. He, he gets all the awesome gifts. People are really helping him out in big ways they're telling him where to go giving them the things he needs Mm -hmm. there's a certain like dare i say like lack of agency in this perseus that i think like this probably wouldn't fly in in a more recent movie because we would say like perseus is a very passive character yeah but I, i think yeah it's it even works very well for the myth itself where yeah the character is more like a cipher than anything else right it's like we are all the young like hero who wants to do the right thing and it's so bland and it just lets everything happen to us instead of making us make decisions which i guess is slightly different than how i'm thinking of like a new hope in star wars Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. like luke makes a decision he chooses he says i want to learn the ways of the force but ah." there's no but there's a certain irony i think that you're hitting at where like where perseus is in many ways, the original hero's journey, or not maybe oh, yeah. the original, but one of the earliest sort of concrete iterations of hero's journey, hero with a thousand faces, that whole mm-hmm. trope. But Luke embodies it a little bit better because Luke chooses to go mm-hmm. on the adventure. He has a thing that he wants. He wants to get off his, his lame desert planet. Mm-hmm. Perseus doesn't really make any choices in this uh, movie. All. He just yeah. kind of is, he shooed along by either Zeus or mostly by Zeus or or the other gods or whoever. We have no idea like what Perseus wants other than to marry Andromeda. Yeah. And there's not even like a I want to get off my little desert island that I've always lived on with my horses and my mom, right? Like he doesn't yeah. even express the sort of I want to see the wider world. It's a decision that's made for him. Even I think Zeus says something like it's time for you to experience danger. Yep. <laughs> Again, A New Hope came out four years before this where Perseus is kind of that, like, Luke really is doing Perseus better than Perseus, Mm -hmm. where, you know, Perseus could have been like, this island is lame, and, like, I need to get out of here, Mm -hmm. and, like, my mom's in a city situation, like, this whole thing, and, like, but, like, this Perseus is is just like, I don't know, like, yeah, like, I I loved Andromeda the minute I met her. Um, (laughs) Also, before he ever got dropped off in Joppa, he's falling asleep on a beach, which enviable 
we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like he had a really sweet life yeah. before he got dropped off in Joppa. He was just riding horses on beaches yeah. and just hanging out. And Zeus kind of says something to the effect that he's like, oh, yeah, he's like, he's good looking. He's young. You know, what more do you want? So so now that we're on Perseus, can we, we get into some of the background of Harry Hamlin and all yes. of that? Yes. Did you guys realize that apparently one of the possible candidates for this role was a young Arnold Schwarzenegger. What? The so the story is Schneer and Harryhausen. They come up with the concept for this movie. They have a sort of screenwriter on on board. They go first to Columbia, and they were like fifteen million dollars too much. <laughs> then they go to Orion Studios, and Orion is like, "We will fund this, but you have to cast a certain young Austrian bodybuilder <laughs> to play the role." <laughs> to which apparently Schneer said, "We can't do it because the part has dialogue." <laughs> Yeah, they, they thought he was too muscly for the kind of, like, good all-American appearance they were going for. And yeah. the, the true irony is, like, they thought Theseus was a very clever character and that Arnold Schwarzenegger couldn't pull that off. There's <laughs> there's so much to, like, work with. Where, like, one is, like, could you imagine had, what this movie would be if it starred Arnold Schwarzenegger? Because that is a very different movie. It is a very different movie. He just brings a different energy I mean, he was he was in what is it Hercules in New York? He was in that movie like right around this time. Mm-hmm. Um, he got casted to Conan the Barbarian soon after, which does seem very appropriate. So. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that, that could you imagine Percy's back on drama though? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, I kind of love it. There's such a different energy to that yeah. Perseus. Yeah, I, which in ways I like can't even wrap my heads or my heads around because um, <laughs> I have two heads. I'm in fact a dog with two heads. Not but three. Not three. Just Close. two. Like he literally just called it two dog. I have him in my notes as double puppy. Double puppy. <laughs> Lucky puppy. The yeah the uh, yeah Dioski Lucky. Um, Dioski Lucky. Oh, three heads was too much. All of this animation or stopgap animation that they're doing. A third head was too much. So, <laughs> so bringing back to Perseus. So, one was Arnold Schwarzenegger was almost Perseus, which is just a different beast in and of itself. Two, if you want to talk about background drama, uh, a baby is born out of this movie named <laughs> Dimitri Hamlin, yes. which I love. Harry Hamlin was he was he was romantically engaged with Ursula Andress during the production of this film, and then. Dimitri Hamlin was born right before this movie, or right after, excuse me, right? <laughs> Dimitri Hamlin was born right after this movie st- uh, stopped filming. Which I just think works so well that Ursula Andress was Aphrodite. It just... She has only one line. It just makes line. me so happy. <laughs> yeah, she's line. barely there. She's just like, you know. Well, I, I kind of loved how campy and serious but silly... Harry Hamlin was as Perseus. He just has this like kind of dumb glazed look in his eyes that like really <laughs> like worked for me. I don't know. I was like, <laughs> "Yep, that's Perseus." <laughs> yeah, that was the ir- like that was what I thought was the irony of being like Perseus is a clever hero and I'm like, Nope. <laughs> no, he seems a little like he seemed a little slow in the uptake. Yeah. I mean, even the so like in the first to like bring it back to the plot like the whole thing with with Andromeda is that the suitors have to solve a riddle, otherwise they get burned at the stake. That's the rules. That's the rules. <laughs> but but Andromeda is so beautiful that you you'd risk it all. And Perseus only can solve the riddle. You know, it's this is kind of an Oedipus kind of thing. But the difference is where Oedipus just figures out the riddle, Perseus cheats. 
Well, I mean, maybe it's cheating. It's cheating when someone other than Perseus does it, but when Perseus does it, it's fine because he uses his invisibility helmet. He follows uh, Andromeda because every night she gets picked up by this giant vulture that takes her to Calabos's lair uh, where Calabos gives her a new riddle. Uh, and we get this scene between Calabos and Andromeda and Calabos gives her the next riddle and then, you know, and then she goes and she gives the riddle the following morning. Which I guess leads us to Cal... Do we want to talk about Andromeda or Calabos first? Calabos, please. Yeah, let's do Calabos. I at first was like, who is this person? Why are we adding this character? Like, I don't care. But he was such a highlight of like this kind of like creepy weird goblin creature that i was like this is fun this is again campy played by neil mccarthy uh, and he did an excellent job and they originally weren't even going to have calibus have any lines right and so they he was only going to be a stop motion figure but then when he needed to speak they were like okay <laughs> yeah he is a combination he's part stop motion claymation yeah and he's part sort of a guy in a in a prosthetics yeah so i think it's only from like the shoulders up that you that you see him and so it's like only Mm -hmm. from the shoulders up and i think sometimes you can see there's like weird paint on him i feel like the makeup in this movie was not which we might come back to with the stygian witches because i was like the makeup is a little bit odd I will um, say andromeda's look loved her makeup for the time period so like her hair was incredible yeah. But well, okay. <laughs> but Calibos, I I thought was a fun actually like it it seemed to work really well and it was kind of maybe like a thorn in the side of everybody. He keeps popping back up and like ruining everything and that's such a I don't know, it was good. It was a good the thing villain. Is, like Calibos was kind of smarter than Perseus. Like Calibos definitely gets the drop on Perseus many oh, times. Hell he, like, yeah. <laughs> he he steals Pegasus, he like surprises Perseus. Like Perseus is always kind of caught with his pants down when Calibos comes around. And to the point where it was almost like we get that that exposition from Zeus kind of early on that like Calibos is like by all accounts like probably like some kind of serial killer or like just a, a guy who drowns puppies. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, this is many things where the, the villain is a little bit more interesting. But Calibus, like, seemed to have, like, thoughts and, like, desires and, you know, motives and whims. Whereas Perseus was just a little bit, uh, a little wonder bready. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I really see this also in Blood of Zeus, where it's like Heron is this wonder bred figure and Seraphin is the supposedly, like, mutated, disfigured dark elf but he's way more interesting <laughs> and like yeah, yeah calibus was way smarter and like a very intriguing character to include in the story yeah i mean to their credit in blood of zeus heron like has a, an arc yes that's true of like that's true. overcoming his anger whereas like, the, like i don't know if Perse- does perseus i would say does not have an arc in no. this film other than no. he wins and this is i guess maybe uh maybe a sign of the times or something like that but it's like, it's just like a story of like the guy who gets to win all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. You know, and to the point, not even just to get to win, but like Perseus sort of, he's like not even particularly good at what, like his, like for example, like Calibos wises up, to, he sees Perseus's footprints as he's leaving his swamp lair. Like Calibos like wises up to Perseus and Perseus still gets to like chop off Calibos's hand. Perseus solves the riddles by cheating. Like Perseus, you know, it seems like everyone else does like a lot of the heavy lifting around Perseus around this quest. And... Again, this is, I think, in, in many ways, like, true to the myth. But then this brings me to a, a larger point that I don't want to come and talk about, sort of, I think, at the end. Uh, but so, yeah, Perseus, 
solve like he 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 chops off Calabos's hand. He loses his invisibility helmet, the best thing he had going for him. And then he get, he gets to go back to Joppa and he solves the riddle, which was it's, it was a ring, a very specific ring, not like just it was a really a ring. specific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I got really upset about the helmet thing because I thought I had a memory of him like needing it and having to go back for it, which is also very Greek myth, like the the bow and arrow that Philoctetes has from. Mm-hmm. Heracles is like, oh, apparently we need that guy. We need to bring him back. And it's like, nope, it just falls into the swamp and back Lost to Hades, forever. I guess. <laughs> so convenient. I mean, well, this was, I, I had a similar, I had like a Mandela effect in Blood of Zeus where I thought that that sword that he made at the beginning came back at the end in some big way. And I think I just invented that memory. But yeah, no, the helmet is just lost, which leads Zeus to be like, oh, Athena, give him another gift. <laughs> which, like, if I were Athena, I'd be like, no dude like he lost i gave him an awesome gift and he lost it i'm not giving him my owl which yeah. is basically what she did she's like and substitute owl <laughs> Woo-hoo. and now like that has been i think that's what i like about bubo so much is like that is the campiest thing that now must appear in all other tellings of the story and was in blood of zeus which was like one of those like really fun meta yeah. throwbacks in so many ways yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I, I think the the when the remake did it, I, I thought it was a little like they were thumbing their nose in a, in a way that they didn't really deserve. But then they take Bubo out and they're like, "What's this?" And I'm like, "It's trash. Throw it out." <laughs> and I was like, "All right, like you don't come on." <laughs> I don't no, think I'm... I don't think you're in that position to be sort of. Yeah, yeah. It also strikes me as just so wonderfully like D and D esque. Is like you have like a little helper creature that's like coming along to just be there when you need it eli can testify that (laughs) i as a dm do this often where i usually insert some kind of small flying creature who usually talks like one of taika watiti's characters it's true this is this is an actual real life DD thing that has happened But no, I I like it. It's like, you know, Bubo can come in and save the day. He like pulls up the... Bubo does so much work. He does. He like carries some serious weight. Yeah. And like also has this sort of like heartfelt moments where you're like, oh my God, he got knocked over. Oh my God, he got knocked into the water. Oh my God, is he okay? And I'm like, why do I care about it? That's some okay. craftsmanship from Hephaestus right there. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, he's he's this wonderful little non-character character that is R2-D2. I'm sorry. He's like pulling huge weight for the rest of the cast and is saving the day in the background mm. while making little beepy noises. I love it. I would say go out on a limb. He maybe has more personality than Perseus. Oh, oh easily. Definitely. <laughs> I I do love the moment though. It's like starting to talk to Bubo. I can hear him clear as day. <laughs> and everyone's else looking at him like he's crazy. I'm like, no, no, that's that's right. That tracks. So at this point, Perseus is gonna marry Andromeda. He solved the riddle. That was more of a. It, I mean, I guess the riddle was of the level of like, what do I have in my pocket? Yeah. Which is not a riddle. It was not a good riddle. It was terrible. Bad I'm like, riddle. where is this going? I can make no sense of it. Throws down the hand. I'm like, that's not a good riddle. <laughs> I will say that was a good reveal, I think, on Perseus's part. We're like, oh, yeah, it, by the way, it's his hand, which I've been carrying under my cloak <laughs> this entire time right. just to wait for this one mic drop moment where I can be like, boom, Calavos's hand. 
that I did. That I did like. Yeah, I, no, that, that was, was great. Like, the riddle terrible. Times. The response amazing. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and then <laughs> Thetis. And then we have this great scene where the temple collapses, and Thetis is like, "Uh, the Kraken's gonna come out and eat you guys." I loved. <laughs> her face superimposed on that statue <laughs> head. I thought that was super fun. I love the idea of like this, you know, really dramatic statue crumbling and then speaking. And I mean, mm. I know that the technology was, I guess, mm, could have, it like would be done differently today, I guess, but it- This is it was of cool. the same technology of like in Superman, which came out like three years prior where right. Jor-El like talks to yeah. Superman like via the crystals. It's exactly yeah. like- yeah. Yeah. Just went back to Power Rangers flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. Same deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I liked that. I thought that was really cool. Okay, so Percy's in our charge on the quest. So we actually, now we get the sort of Percy Smith proper. And the first stop is Stygian Witches. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But like, why? <laughs> I just, I guess we needed something, uh, some sort of prophetic force, but they were so silly. And I love them. A titan against a titan. But first you must win Medusa's head. That's true to the myth though, right? Because um, Hermes delivers the gifts. Wait, does, that's what I'm trying to remember now is I know that they pass him the information to get Medusa, but I think they also tell him how to use the no, gifts. I can't remember either. I loved the Stygian witches. I thought they were great. I loved how they like were shoving that guy's hand back into their cauldron. We're like, no, we're going to eat you later. It's fine. <laughs> but I think that their makeup could have been better. This is the thing where I think the... Later interpretations, I think, really run with it because, like, the Stygian witches are a group that, like, we can really have fun with because they are, you know, they got the one eye and in some versions they also have one tooth that they share between them. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, like, Disney's Hercules, I think, does a really good job with, like, give me the eye! Like, they're, like, fighting one another. Mm -hmm. Like, no, I want to talk to them. And, like, or that they're these, like, old sort of maybe, like, a little bit randy older women who are like, ah, I want to see you. Like, let me touch them. Like, like, (laughs) and, like, we could really, like, have a lot more, like, I think the instinct maybe to play the Stygian witches solemnly like might not be the right instinct. I think maybe yes. we want to play them broad. Mm-hmm. And also even in like in Percy Jackson, I think they're like cab drivers. Like they're doing the <gasps> yes, they're right. the equivalent in Percy Jackson of like the night bus in Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. But they show up in the cab and they're like they're like driving the cab and then they all turn around like who's driving the car? And they're like <laughs> it's like that kind of thing. And but yeah, they, 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 it seems like we could have gone hammier. Yep. That's like that was my note was like we could have gone way hammier yeah i feel like they they were played pretty straight and i just i don't know it was really distracting to see just like obvious like makeup that stopped right at their eyes the holes in the to cut it's like if you're gonna make them not have eyes there's got to be better ways to do that and And the eye itself was just like it was like a jewel yeah it was a crystal ball it was just like a crystal ball which i was like ah this could have been grosser like if they were in such like a a kind of grody place and they had like you know the cauldron of ick with the hand in it and there were like bones on the floor i'm like we could have really leaned in to like the grotesquerie here and had like a a big actual eyeball like that would have been really fun i was just gonna say that it feels like to me what so much of the movie is is to showcase special effects or like weird things you can do with the camera and so like 
looking through the eye had that prismatic effect when they're so it's like I feel like that was the choice is we're gonna make the eye look like that so we can do this cool thing with the camera and not actually it's an eyeball like that makes sense this is maybe jumping forward but I'm thinking like the the sort of weird creepiness of the Stygian witches versus Charon who is just a skeleton like an animated skeleton which I think worked really well it was very fun and like freaky which is that maybe maybe easier to play solemnly just like a, a hooded skeleton yeah but i feel like the the grossy icky part this is a bit of a weird touchstone but i'm thinking like so in this talking about like weird and grotesquery a year from now a movie is going to come out called the thing by john carpenter which i think about when you think about the jump between the Stygian Witches and The Thing, which like also I recently learned The Thing when it came out, audiences and critics hated The Thing. It was like panned universally. And it was only until later that it became like a cult classic. But like the <laughs> grotesquery of The Thing is like so, I mean, we're talking about just like the pivotal point that like Hollywood movies are in at this period where like, I guess maybe we, we buried the lead a little bit talking about Harryhausen because we're going to talk about the monsters now, but like that like, like, Hollywood, I think, is about to make like a light speed jump in terms of digital and practical effects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the thing. And I feel like that uses not only the practical sort of ick factor, but has mm-hmm. so much of that cinematic like dread feeling that even even when they're, you know, on the boat with Charon, it's like it's still too campy. And so I think that's such an interesting line that this movie is on from like a year away from um yeah from yeah it, it's, it's wild to think about like yeah. this movie i think clash of Titans is like so interesting to me to think about in like the other movies that it came out alongside with like 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 we said at the beginning it came out on the same day as raiders of the lost ark but yet we see it as like of a different era because in many ways it is and i guess we didn't really do a due diligence but ray harryhausen was the special effects genius of movies from like 1951 or something like that 1950s all the way until this was his last film and then he retires and and he passed away in in 2013 but he was a giant of the movie industry and special effects and, and were, this is a point where this movie is coming out now where the people that Harryhausen himself inspired like Lucas and Spielberg and James Cameron are themselves starting to make movies now that are like going beyond and like pushing blockbuster popular cinema in directions and so which is why you watch this movie and you kind of feel like this movie feels like you don't think about this movie and star wars or indiana jones as like being in the same kind of like era but they absolutely are but this because this is kind of the bookend of a chapter in sort of hollywood special effects tradition and it's there's right now so like ilm industrial light and magic which is George Lucas's special effect company is starting up. They started up a couple of years ago and they're going to do Star Wars and all the Indiana Jones and then the Terminator movies and then Jurassic Park and like getting into digital effects and using computers. And then just like, you know, that's going to change the game for the next until now. And I, I, I lost where I was going with this rant, but just like this is why that's like really a big part of why this movie feels like it's just a sort of almost like an artifact. Yeah. Or it's and this is why I think it's so interesting as like a movie to to talk about sort of critically or like if you were to uncover this movie decades or centuries from now and be like this is a really pivotal point where like this is the it's like almost this is maybe a weak analogy but like vase painting in the ancient world 
were you shifting from different technologies, different painting styles, different color schemes? And you can really date something by like, well, at this point, they actually, they go from painting the red pot with black slip figures, and then they reverse it and they start doing red figures with black slip on the outside or something like the the technology and the technique changes. And it just jumps forward into like a next the next era and there's like you know and you can use it to like delineate and like so this is like this is almost like in many ways like the last bastion of like red figure wear pottery but most of the movies going forward are black figure wear or no other way around sorry i did that backwards this is really like the last bastion of like black figure wear pottery and going forward the movies are red figure wear pottery i think that's a great analogy yeah yeah, no, it's a great analogy, and I'm just going to say it's a shame because apparently a sequel movie titled Force of the Trojans was pitched to MGM in 1984, and we never got it. Ah. There was there promises. There's rumors. So in 2018, the Ray Harryhausen Foundation came out and being like, we're going to make – we found a bunch of, like, archives and, and material in, you know, Harryhausen stores. And we have all old. Well, like, there's one website that says that Beverly Cross is writing the script, but Beverly Cross died in 1998, so he's definitely not writing the script. So in 2018, there was like, whoa, we're going to do Force of the Trojans. It's going to be in this Harryhausen, this classic style, which again, like, I don't want to like come off too sort of derisively against it because it was so phenomenally important and like, I, like, was foundational in like Hollywood like even like I, we mentioned Lucas and Spielberg and Cameron but like Guillermo del Toro and all of these sort of um, I had like a whole list of directors who are like protégés of Harryhausen mm-hmm. like all of like modern special effects in many ways is like is, is Harryhausen's legacy mm-hmm. uh, and there's a great I don't know if any of you watch Gravity Falls or have seen Gravity Falls yep oh yeah there was like a Harryhausen tribute episode where the characters like they basically find like effectively Ray Harryhausen's name someone else. But then like the conceit is like all of his claymation monsters like come to life mm-hmm. what? and they have to fight like a cyclops, but like a claymation cyclops mm-hmm. and claymation skeletons. Apparently Harryhausen loves skeletons like and this we can talk about this in our Jason the Argonauts episode. But like one of his most interesting, he was like, would it be cool if somebody fought a skeleton? <laughs> Man after my own heart. I thought the skeletons were in this movie, actually, because that, that really just shows, like, how much of a style he mm-hmm. really had that, like, yeah. it's yeah. definitive in a lot of ways. This was the first movie that Harryhausen was not alone doing the special effects. Mm-hmm. He hired two assistants, which is, again, crazy to think about now where if you watch, like, any Marvel movie and you get to the VFX team and it's, like, 500 people. Yeah. Yeah. And to think that Harryhausen was a single person just doing all of the creatures, animating them painstakingly, like frame by frame. And this movie was big enough that he needed to hire two assistants to help him with that. But even that, just like to think about three people doing the entire visual effects of a movie today is insane. (laughs) It is. No, I like how you could really see sometimes it looked like a Photoshop fail or something like the little lines like or, that were cut out around the cityscape images. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just kind of made me smile or like the tiny little Poseidon outside of the Kraken temple where yeah. the first time I was like, is that is that a tiny little 
Poseidon? Is that mm-hmm. supposed to be there? It's so small and the gates are so big. And Or like um, when like someone's flying over, like they have like helicopter shots of a, of a landscape and they have like a bird or a pegasus or something like that flying over. That was kind of the part of the fun of watching WandaVision really early on was like seeing them recreate all these old fashioned special effects because I used to watch Dick at Night and so like Bewitched and I Dream of Genie mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's like it's like wire work. Yeah, yeah. I think that's part of this movie's legacy is that this movie is really like a nostalgia for that kind of era and that mm-hmm. technique of special effects. And you like when you want to really see like this is in many ways that like we say it's the end of sort of a legacy or a tradition. It's also kind of the peak of that same tradition. Like this is probably the most technically proficient film that Harryhausen made. Like this right. is the best of stop motion animation yeah. or like that and like really we can say like the harry housing because it really sort of revolves around him yeah should we move on to the medusa fight i, feel I like was just about fun. to say that yeah. yeah so like now it's time to talk about medusa well i love that they're at pystum they're in the temple of hera at pystum i yeah. love that they filmed there i was like where is that i like google that's exactly what i did too I, I like stopped it like <laughs> That's a real Doric temple. Where is it? <laughs> yep. I like, I knew immediately because I had the Temple of Hera at Pystum on my Greek archaeology exam and it like killed me. <laughs> so I was like, I know what that is. <laughs> it was like a horrific flashback. But, yeah. <laughs> for, for our listeners, Pystum in, in southern Italy, it's in, it's a little south of uh, Campania, right? It's like just south of the Bay of Naples. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful site. There's, I think, three really excellently preserved Doric temples, like Greek-style temples, and they are massive. They're so big. So huge. And there's like a Temple of Hera, a Temple of Poseidon, and I forget what the third one is. I think there's like a second Temple of Hera, actually. There's two Temples of Hera. One of them they used to call the Temple of Poseidon, um, but they call it just the second Temple of Hera now. I think my might be like ABC, Temples of Hera. Yeah, that, that, like that tracks. And like one is 6th century, one is 5th century. And I, again, the other one I think is, I forget. <laughs> but so I, I think the one that they filmed in, I, I, I think, is the second Temple of Hera because the pediment is slightly more intact than the first one. But they are both, I think, they're both Doric for sure. And the Temple of Hera too um, is hexastyle. So it has six columns across the front. It has those big um, kind of ribbed columns that um, are just really, really excellent and is absolutely enormous. I actually, as I remember, I have a story about Pystum. Oh no. <laughs> it's not, a, I mean, it's a fun story. But I was, uh, I, I, I was an undergrad and I was in Italy and we went to Pystum and the professor was basically explaining to us, like, so the way you, we call the style Doric, you know, Doric temples, which is like a particular architectural style, usually sort of very, it's like the simplest style usually. But the way you can kind of, he was explaining to us, like, the way you can tell the age of a Doric temple is by, you, you look at the top part of the column called the echinus, like the little, like, oval that sits between the column and the, the pediment, the, th- the thing that lies across. And the general rule of thumb is that, like, the earlier styles have much, like, rounder, more, like, sort of egg-shaped, for lack of a better word, echinuses, 
but he was like describing i don't want to i don't want to say his name on air but the professor was describing it's like the really old styles is like there's a deep groove and you can really get your whole like one two three even your whole fist in there (laughs) into that groove and we were all standing around as he's like giving the most like sexually like like innuendo laden description of this like architecture and like the the style and shape of this column and we were all like we're sitting there we're like because it was probably like 9 a.m in the morning we like just woken up and he was basically like talking about like fisting the column (laughs) and we were all looking at each other like what is happening this is like a weirdly like sexually charged lecture (laughs) it's like that's like how i read like that is like burned into my memory and like after i remember we were all like we all like left and we like were like kind of walking around and exploring the temple and we would come back to each other like did you <laughs> like yeah like you did you hear what i heard because like i heard it was like kind of horny it was like a re- that was like the horniest lecture about a temple i've ever heard that seems appropriate for greek architecture i must yeah. say though i mean yeah. you go to delos they literally have flying penises on the tops of columns for i'm pretty sure it's for dionysus at his temple so like yeah why not incredible i love it <laughs> So anyway, yeah, they so they filmed at Pistum. Then we get so we get two monsters again. I think the plot of this movie is largely driven by like what monsters we want to work in here. Yeah. So we had Dioskelos, or as I like to call him, Double Puppy. Although, as Christy rightly informed me, Skelos is just dog. Puppy is Skelaki. little dog. <laughs> Kitten is Yataki, which is also a personal favorite of mine. So well, yeah. I mean, they get attacked by the two-headed dog, but. They couldn't have a three-headed dog because it would take too much time to animate, right? Like, it was like, yep. we don't have enough time, so it's just two heads. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and the, the three-headed dog, to, to quote another sort of popular YouTube channel, is it hard to get by the dog? Uh, no, it's uh, barely an inconvenience. Because one of the red shirts that goes with Perseus gets two head, mm-hmm. gets gets killed by the two-headed dog. And then Perseus basically, Perseus is, during this whole fight, he has to get his sword back from a snake. Mm-hmm. Yep. But they, they like kind of blow past that relatively quickly, like minimal red shirt. Yeah, as we said. Yeah, I kind of blinked and he was gone. Yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. And we're and down it's like, to two. Then you're down to like the boss fight, right? And like. Yeah. Then we have exactly two guards to tell us exactly two things, which is one, that Medusa has a bow and arrow that she'll shoot you with. And two, mm-hmm. that she can turn you into stone. Which is all we need to know. It's fine. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Must establish these facts. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I am excited to be in the Medusa scene finally because apparently Harry Hamlin actually stood up for the authenticity of the story, which still isn't quite as authentic as we would like it to be. But apparently they just wanted him to throw his shield and behead Medusa that way because they thought an actual decapitation by sword was going to be too violent. Simpler times, (laughs) I guess. But um And like Harry Hamlin was so upset. He's like, you can't kill Medusa that way. So he locked himself in his dressing room for days and like convinced other crew members that it's like, no, we need to tell the right version of the story. So they actually changed that part of the script to have the fight play out that the way it did. So I was like, I liked that. Like, thanks. Good job, Harry Hamlin. (laughs) Yeah, because that that part of the story is is really true to the myth. He uses his shield as like a mirror to see behind him um, to actually conduct the fight. Yeah, which is great. That I mean, that's the part that's not like really accurate either. And I, I bring this up in Greek myth and Greek civ classes a lot is like, how do you guys 
know the like remember the fight between Perseus Medusa and like it's it usually involves the shield either like reflecting and turning her into stone or like some kind of active fight and it's like incorrect she was asleep he had this helmet he snuck up on her and chopped her head off and then fled not very cinematic but yeah that's not how I remember it <laughs> that is she and the her two sisters are asleep whoa I mean this movie is probably one of the most iconic depictions of Medusa in popular culture, probably the most iconic. I mean, this movie invents the, the whole, like the look of that this movie goes with Medusa is probably the most sort of like perpetuating. And I just wanted to shout out on Twitter, Amy Hines Scott, we'll link in the, in the show notes, had a great thread just the other day about sort of the film history of Medusa and that like, the snake body, her having a snake body really starts in this movie. And yeah, like Chrissy was saying, like we need to kind of invent this fight involving like the shield and the and the goons that get decapitated. Yeah. yeah. It's so funny though, that's like that's how I remember the fight. And I'm like wondering how much of that is just like basically the cultural remembrance of this movie. <laughs> and it's also just a reflection of on like you know, when you really look at the stories of heroic acts, like how many of them are would we consider today mm-hmm. that heroic? And like most of the time, they're not. They're taking advantage of a situation of a vulnerability in this case. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't look good to just kill a defenseless sleeping woman and run off. So we have to make her monstrous. We have to make her um threatening right. like actually threaten his own life so it's okay to right, do right, all these right. things and i think it's interesting the greeks didn't see it that way like they you don't have to justify heroic acts as they're portrayed because you are a hero just because you are noble and you are doing these things therefore anything you do is heroic <laughs> yeah shoveling horse poop out of the stables yep, is yep. heroic you get a whole labor out <laughs> of it and like this movie acknowledges the inherent tragedy of Medusa's situation a little like because like, Ammon says like he massages the story a little bit he, he leaves out a very key detail of the myth yeah. mm-hmm. where he says Medusa slept with Poseidon but he's he's really massaging it because of, as is presented particularly in Ovid but but elsewhere that Medusa was raped by Poseidon and then punished by Athena and transformed into the sort of snake-headed stone vision monster we get like really close to like acknowledging medusa's humanity and the remake does this as well where it actually it does mention that medusa was raped by poseidon and then the remake is in in some ways the remake is almost it's like a weirder turn because it's like they tell the like they tell a very compelling and sympathetic story Mm -hmm. and then they're like all right, let's just go chop this bitch's head yeah. off or whatever. Like they they say something like almost those exact words, or it's like don't oh just don't look this bitch in the eye. That's what it was. And that just has this like weird whiplash. Is like did you just hear the story like a minute ago? Yeah, yeah. And and in the original myth, it's a total whim on the part of like this random character. It's like what sounds like an impossible task for this kid to pull mm-hmm. off uh, Medusa's head, and like that's that's the whole reason she's yeah. done in yeah. mm-hmm. is. The whim of some random king trying to hook up with another woman. So. Yeah. Like Medusa is in pretty much every version basically f- just minding her own business. Yes. There's bits in like Ovid and Lucid that mention that like the area around her is like totally like petrified and like the people and trees and birds and whatever are like petrified. But like she's not like the Kraken in the sense where like she's coming to destroy mm-hmm. your town right. or, or your love or whoever. Like he just goes out to like kill her. 
Um, and I think like this is many sort of recent generations and there has been a, in the last several decades, I would say, even going to like Helene Sixou, where it's like laughing Medusa, like a reclamation or a reclamation of Medusa as a, as a sort of, I mean, not just a feminist icon, but among other things, a feminist icon of like, this is kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like the other component of her story, because she has two sisters, she's not really sisters. There's two other Gorgons who do the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. But the reason Medusa is targeted because she is mortal and the other two aren't. So she's the only one you can kill. Right. Well, truthfully, I was really surprised at how sort of late in the game the Medusa fight happened. Like it's pretty far into the movie, like the the Medusa head and then the scorpion fight, which was just like, really, do we really need this? That's when I was feeling like it kind of yeah. dragged. That was the one that felt the most like obligatory. To oh, me. yeah. I was like, we don't really need mm-hmm. this. But then like. But it served one function because it was tying the bow on Calibus. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. That's true. But. um. And the death of our oh. of our man, Thalos. Oh, which just like didn't need to happen. I wanted him to survive his red shirt status. Thalos was MVP. Absolutely. he was. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it's like 20 minutes left in the movie and we still haven't had the Kraken battle mm-hmm. pretty much. And it was it was really it seemed like the end kind of really rushed down to that line. Yeah. But it was like, you know, it was all action. I kind of liked how it was, you know, Perseus is rushing to to like get there and make it back. And they were always talking about the time. We're like rushing against the clock. We have 30 days. That worked. That worked for me. This movie it's longer than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. In, in the, yeah. like, it's almost two hours. It's basically two hours. Yeah. And I think a part of that is like it's the the beginning part and the mid, the beginning middle third, like maybe the first act, like kind of because it kind of seems like it like up it takes like thirty to forty minutes for us to get to really the main quest where we're also we forgot to mention that like Andromeda well Andromeda is there for the quest for like part of it. Yeah, I I think that's what kind of happened in the movie too. It's like oh yeah Andromeda. <laughs> she's here well, i was sort of excited for a moment i was like oh she's she's advocating for herself like she's like i want to come with like i'm gonna do this with you i was like cool maybe she'll get to do something and then no nope they pull a theseus yep. ariadne yep. move right there <laughs> just leaves her in the middle of the night at least they left am Amon with them or she's like don't worry you got a nice poet guy to take you home to be sacrificed you're welcome so the the kraken fight my my background at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, so in, in myth, it's just a Cetus or something like that. Just like a generic sea monster or like a, I mean, Meaning yeah, or white. a whale. Or Apparently. yeah, it was, I mean, it would be a little bit different if Andromeda was attacked by Free Willy. But yeah. Um, yep. Also, I think that would have been terrifying in its own right. Have you guys watched the Twitter? I'm going to be off tangent for a moment. There was a Twitter video where a poor little seal got yes. on a boat with this oh, yeah. one lady and she starts to panic and it's swarmed by orcas. Yes. You're like, oh my gosh. And she's like, you need to die, seal. <laughs> that was really terrifying. She doesn't say that, but she's like, I Take one for the team, <laughs> seal, just like. <laughs> so after watching that video, I feel like a whale instead of a kraken, if it was an orca, would have been legit. So no, no. I, I have like a weird fear of like large things in the water with me that I can't see. So I 
That's not a weird fear. That's a totally <laughs> rational fear. A legit fear. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Being in the water with something larger than you, I think, is a perfectly reasonable fear. But if you ever... Like, depending sure, on the body just, like, of water. Have you into but still. the ocean and been like, oh, shit, there's, like, very possibly something super large and I can't see it. And then, like, freak yourself out. Like, I have two thoughts. I, I get freaked out when my, my foot touches something because basically I read about, as a young kid, I read a lot of animal books. This is going to be no surprise to anyone who knows me. No but that there are, like, for example, lionfish and stonefish. Stonefish are the ones that freak me out because they're, they're fish that camouflage themselves to look like rocks. And they're incredibly venomous. <laughs> and, like, they will sting you. If, and it's like, you know, like, if you step on one and they're like, they have, like, deadly amounts of venom. I was always petrified of, like, stonefish and super poisonous jellyfish and things like that there was like i could just be walking and like step on like an incredibly poisonous animal and not realize it well i feel like it does like depend on where you are because like i my ocean experience is off the coast of north carolina and you can like look up um like the great white sharks that are tagged like show up they'll like ping and we sort of would look on our phone every time we went swimming like what great white sharks are off the coast today (laughs) it's like george (laughs) or catherine is is one that we saw a lot yes but like being in like lakes in in minnesota is is different because there are enormous we got to worry about Loch Ness monsters but yeah it's like i'm more worried about the crazy snake monsters than i am about you know just just the big fish i don't know well, I think at the very least, since you brought up the term and we got on whales, like we should just point out like the Kraken is not Greek myth. That is Scandinavian in some Norwegian, Swedish, Norwegian. Something. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Norwegian. Yeah. The sea monster that destroys Argos was derived from Norwegian mythology. In Greek myth, the monster is called Cetus, a whale, but we get Kraken, which was more equated with a giant squid. And I think that's how modern, yeah, yeah. like, that's For how sure. we do The design of it. this creature and also the of the remake, the remake has a lot more tentacles, yes, admittedly. It does. Uh, although it's kind of similar to this where it has, like, a sort of anthropomorphic, like, head and body. And then its lower section is, like, like in this one, its lower section is, like, fish. yeah. Although it has more than it has multiple it arms, it looks like in some of the shots it's an actual fish, right? That they've filmed, and so it's like its back half is sort of positioned to look huge, but it almost looks like something between a fish and like an alligator. It has like big, you know, scaly something, and then it it comes up, yeah, to that sort of out of the water. It almost looks like like an like an ape. It has like but like with four hands. Yeah, I was going to say, the still image that we've been staring at for almost two hours now, it has a nipple. And I'm like, fish. Ergo, it's a mammal. It is. It must be a mammal, right? (laughs) Well, it it has very, like, it's very reminiscent of the creature from the Black Lagoon, Mm. like the the gill man. Yeah. Like, it looks a lot like that. It was kind of creepily human and i think that that's what really worked for it as it being a a scary monster sort of monster design is that it was disturbingly human it was like i remember when the the hands came up out of the the -hmm. water onto the rocks it was like one two and then three and it was like yeah yeah it was like that sort of like inhuman reaction to something that is so human that i think works really well for this 
it takes advantage of the uncanny valley, yes, right? Yes, it does. And I mean, that's what Greek myth does with their monsters a lot of the time, too, is like there's something slightly human and familiar, and yet it's truly terrifying because there's something not mm-hmm. right about it. So I think I think they did yeah. a good job in that regard. I also think maybe it, it went very quickly, like, you know, is very close to the end, but and there seemed to be no real tension once Perseus got there. I think the whole tension was, is he, I guess, he's he still in the water. water. Yeah. Which is where I lost my patience with Perseus, where he drops the fucking bag. <laughs> he, like, can't get it open. <laughs> he's, like, fumbling. You, yeah, you had, like, Perseus, you had one job, and you were flying here to do the crack, and you had one thing to do, <laughs> and you screw it up. And you know who has to come and pick up your slack? Boobo. Boobo. <laughs> Boobo has to come in and rescue. Boobo should get to marry Robin. Agreed. Like, <laughs> yeah. And in the remake, they do the thing where they, like, to sort of prolong that scene a little bit. Because, again, like Eli said, he's got the head. All he needs to do is show the head to the Kraken. Like, See, we got to, like, stretch this out. You know, get our money's worth. And so in the remake, they have this whole thing where Hades is sort of imps grab the bag and fly off with it so we can have like a chase. But in this one, it's just like Perseus just drops the bag as he's trying to get the head out. And then it's Bubo who has to... By the way, also, I learned in an early draft of the script, the Kraken was going to rip Pegasus apart. And then that was deemed like too... That's too violent. I, I agree so with they that. Took that. I out. agree with that. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would honestly just turn everybody off to Perseus. Yep. It'd be like... Just like, Pegasus is the one who gets to go on and have an adventure with a whole new hero. Anyway, yeah. you can't kill Pegasus. Just like you can't kill Menelaus <laughs> and Troy. Like, why would you do that? So yeah, so so Perseus drops the bag, two prolonging accident, and then but then he just gets it out, and then it's like it's still like it's one and yeah, done. it's over so quickly. It's like we we know that it's gonna happen. It's almost like they're they're really trying to prolong it, as you've said, with this sort of like oh whoops, because we kind of know it's like it's gonna happen. This is the ending. It's there's not as much tension. I felt in that in that scene as there was in like the Medusa scene where he's hiding behind the column and he's really tense and i feel like you know we always know that the hero is going to prevail in a movie like this but that scene felt more climactic and like end of movie than the kraken did yeah again the most tension i felt was the opening scene and hoping the crate wasn't going to flip over with the woman and child that i knew weren't (laughs) in it but like i was really worried (laughs) exactly yeah. Like, so we know what happens to Medusa's head eventually. I forget. Like, I'm blinking. What happened in the movie? What happened to the head afterwards? We get he the- throws it. He throws it into the water. And I remember thinking, That's like, what I thought. dude, yeah. you want to save that for later? It's like the best thing <laughs> to have on hand ever. Because, like, yeah, so, like, Chrissy's alluding, like, Athena takes the head and, like, embosses it in her shield, I guess. The edges. Yeah. Uh, and there's, I think, an allusion to that where, like, when he's fighting Medusa and he has the reflective shield and her image seems to be, like, burned into the shield. I feel like that's almost an allusion to that, but... He also, before before it went to Athena, um, he, in the original story, just to, like, flush this out, he finally heads back to hometown and is like, hey... You tricked me, Acrisius. <laughs> Dead. Yeah. yeah, he goes to the suitors because, like, goes, uh, what's his name? Polydectes or whatever. Who's going to marry his mom. Oh, right, right. And then he goes to the wedding yeah, party. As, as, yeah, he goes to the wedding party and he's like, get wrecked, losers. 
<laughs> yeah, and it's very like Odysseus-esque where he goes back and there's all these men with ill intentions. I think that's why I liked that story so much versus like that, like they, it came full circle. Like it was the true hero's journey because you do have right. the return yeah. home as the hero having completed like the original yeah. task because mm-hmm. the whole point was to go get her head and here it is. Here so it is. That uh, leads me to, I think, what should be our final kind of question discussion topic, which is if you were to retell, because the Perseus story, like we mentioned, is the sort of original text. It is the sort of template for the hero's journey. But if you were to adapt the Perseus story, what beats would you sort of do? What would you do to the Perseus myth if you were going to like adapt it to the, in this day and age? Going back to like Medusa being like a feminist icon and everything, I think it would really be interesting to actually look at this from the perspective of the women, both monstrous mm-hmm. and victim in however way you frame it. Because I think that'd be really fascinating that all of these women are in some capacity capacity being saved by Perseus, but how or targeted by Perseus. So how like how do they actually feel and experience that? I think that could be really interesting because it flips on the head again this idea of like this is the hero because that he does heroic things versus mm-hmm. like all of these people who are involved in that story are those acts really heroic like right. the, the thing about this movie going back to like the guard pointing out it's like is it really an interested in andromeda or is it an interest in the fact that because he tells us we'll inherit the throne we'll mm, get all yeah. this power by marrying her so like you're never even like okay him being sleazy and watching her sleep you get the idea it's like okay maybe it's about the girl but like the initial interest because he's just like why are all these people getting so involved like what's going on and then he hears about the the line of the throne mm-hmm. and i i think it'd be really interesting to unpack all of these like how does the mom feel about the situation how does Medusa as a monster feel about it. How does Andromeda feel about this situation where she's powerless in so many ways? Right. Mm-hmm. I didn't mention this at the time, but I had in my notes that I put Andromeda where she is sort of in the most elemental form, a kind of prize to be won. Like yeah. She is like deeply objectified like as a person. Absolutely. In the myth, and I think in this, again, like we said, a pretty faithful retelling of at least the spirit of the myth if, yeah. you know, the monsters change. Yeah, yeah. I would really try to give Perseus more agency like if if Perseus is the is the central character that we want to focus on whether or not we should and I think the women are much more interesting <laughs> but I I feel like you can really lean into the Star Warsification of this myth and really give Perseus agency and be like I want maybe to be king or I want to ascend to some throne or I want to rescue this person that I just saw as I'm flying by. Because <laughs> that's the, like in the original story, right? He's just sort of like happens to like go by and be like, oh, there's a maiden chained to the rocks. Ha ha, I will rescue her. Um, so I, I think the agency would make him a more interesting character to follow and and really bring that star warsification and like luke is an interesting character and like we want to follow his storyline and we are interested to know and um the whole like you know who is my father station but like who is my father reveal could be really cool (laughs) keep the gods 
Like that's definitely like, I like the element of how they're interfering and their reasons why, like, even though it's one of the most incorrect, like that is, is the mother of Achilles, (laughs) not Calibos. Like that's weird. (laughs) But like the relationship between them, I really like, it's like, that Mm -hmm. was fun. Do more of that. I agree. Yeah. 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 I have, I had like two thoughts. Well, like the, the gods like gives me, puts me down this whole thought process, Jaren, but like, like my two ideas of how did it go with Perseus? Were we to sort of update the story? Maybe is either Perseus the ally or Perseus the antagonist? And both of these revolve around, I think, the women in the story where you have Perseus the ally where he's like, my mother's in a city situation and I'm like trying to help. And then like, how can I help? And like, I need to go get Medusa. And you can work Andromeda into that situation perhaps where like Perseus is like actively, at least like the maybe is like Perseus as actively trying to help people. Which is a very modern uh, idea of heroism that I'm absolutely superimposing because, like Christy said, like in the ancient uh, or in Greek mythology, her- the heroes are heroic because by virtue of them doing anything. Like you are a hero by virtue of birth and status mm-hmm. and title, and anything you do is by definition heroic. When Hercules wipes his ass, it's heroic <laughs> because he's Hercules. <laughs> When he cross-dresses as a woman. Must be heroic. It's her heroic. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. So, but like for us, our definitions of heroism are culturally specific. And like in 2021, when we're recording this, uh, and when I bury this episode in the time capsule for future archaeologists to discover 2,000 years from now, (laughs) the definitions of heroism would be something to the effect of like true allyship, where if Perseus like does things because he wants to help other people and really taking in the precarious situation that Danai is in as like a single mother mm-hmm. and Andromeda is in as an unmarried woman. But my other completely different, diff- like if I'm going to go the complete opposite way, if I we have Perseus as ally, my other idea is Perseus as antagonist, which is getting back to Medusa, where it's like, if you are Medusa, Perseus is just some f***ing strange dude that busts into your house mm-hmm. and chops your head off when you sleep. Yeah. And there's a there's another version you could like Perseus on the flip side as to being sort of ally and hero and like champion of people is Perseus is just a dude who takes what he wants because he feels it is his birthright. And maybe he is maybe like Zeus, maybe even he is is sort of validated by, you know, divine feet or something like that. Mm-hmm. But where Perseus could really be a villain of a story where he is just coming to kill you. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in in some ways, like where we are now, it's like you can really portray it in both ways. Because so many times when we talk about women's issues and things like that, there's always the like, well, for the sake of my daughter or for the sake of my mother, men will make that connection. Like, oh, my mother, my sister, my daughter goes through this, and so I'm on their side. I'm their ally. But mm-hmm. to then make the jump to like, well, what about all other women? at that point like Mm -hmm. there's that disconnect and i i think you really could put that in a single film of just this dual perception of being an ally but at the ex you know at the expense of hurting other women in in the storyline so christy i think like you you preempted my thoughts because like now i was like well i think now we have a situation where percy's gets to medusa and he's like i need to bring your head back yeah i mean i think i would really love to see a conversation between perseus and medusa where perseus is like i need to chop your head off and medusa is like i really wish you wouldn't because (laughs) of x y and z and then perseus is like well 
Uh, and this is kind of a thing. This happens. I haven't seen the actual show, but I think something similar happens in the show Atlantis, where it's a BBC fantasy series where, per, where Medusa is one of the characters. And then over the course of the show, she is snakeified, for lack of a better word. And then I think her I think I think Hercules is one of the, the minor characters. But she's like, there's like, you need to cut my head off to do a thing and it's this whole it's like a dilemma that plays out and then like and like there's something really interesting that i don't quite have fully fleshed out but of like exactly what christy's saying where like the conflict that arises where percy's like i want to help people out in this situation and then to do that to help people out i need to hurt other people well that's also like a fully dynamic and like kind of real world situation like i feel like there are real world analogies that people could make about like wanting to do the right thing versus doing maybe the most helpful thing versus you know the or something that will hurt one person it's it's the the train car exercise all over again like do you know do you Mm -hmm. kill a bunch of people to help one person or do you kill one person to help a bunch of people which i think humans are always obsessed with that and out like that problem and that's a great story to tell i think what we're getting to is we want i think two things we want perseus to like think for himself yeah and we want him to interact meaning in meaningful ways and we want the women to interact with the story in meaningful ways yep and like think and think about that and i think that's a very solid conclusion to this yep. i want to read that book watch that movie watch that limited series 100%. whatever it is i'm 100 on board for that i feel like talking about this movie made me dig it more that's like a lot of the movies we we study. Yeah. 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 It's it's always fun to really unpack the movies and just feel the love for the you know, the classical world. Like that's really what it's all about. So I think the for me the testament is like I wouldn't have had so many notes and so many thoughts and we would have talked for two and a half hours if at some level this movie if I didn't love the material, I didn't love this movie. I like this movie is so fascinating to me in so many levels as like in like Hollywood history and classical reception. And I don't know. I think it's going to be, I think this is going to be a good first episode or yeah. we're just going to overload everyone now that we actually get people listening to the show. <laughs> this was, this was worth a watch. If you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it in a while, it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. I think this, this movie I think is important. Yes. And I'm going to say, like, I love movies and I love Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> There's a great interview with him at the 2013 King Kong premiere where they're, like, talking about remakes. And he's like, I just love movies. He's just like this old guy. He's like, I love movies and I love monsters and I love making movies about monsters. I'm like, I love you, Ray Harryhausen. And I'm on board. <laughs> he, he's, so, he's so foundational for just modern cinema and i'm like i'm so happy like this movie is really like kind of his his swan song in in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. you know because i think he saw the way that the tide was turning with like Mm -hmm. indiana jones and star wars and and ilm studios and things like that and he this was his last movie i think for a reason but like this is still i think a really important film for sure it was a great way to start season two for sure yeah so on that note we're signing off but Please follow us at at digmovies on Twitter. You can find us on our website, moviesweedig.com. You can also listen to us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, a lot of streaming podcasts. Christy, is there anything you want to plug? I think going forward, since you guys are trying some new things, I think we should do Town at some point, which is a Broadway musical about Eurydice and Orpheus, and it is awesome. So just throwing that out into the universe because I want it to happen. 
All right. I think on that note, it's time to sign off. Thank you again for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Bye. Bye. Ciao.